Well, two of us were on time. <laughs> I thought we were doing like a Dave and Joel style clap. Yeah, that was in honor of the Mad Bull style get clap. A pass. Once more, we are recording. My name is Paul Chapman, sometimes known as the Almighty Gooberzilla, and my guest hosts today. Dowserat from Anime World Order. Joel. <laughs> David. Well, I tried to outfox you, and then you ended up outfoxing me. So, Gerald. Clarissa. Could we all be Clarissa? We'd have to watch Supernatural and get really pissed off about things. Stop mansplaining the podcast. The joke is over. Okay. It's dead. And this is the greatest movie ever podcast. And tonight we bring you the greatest movie ever from 2011, directed by... Darren, you take this one, I don't know. I'll say the name of the title. I remember that. I was just going to say it was directed by Nicolas Cage's Spirit of Vengeance, but it was directed by Patrick Lussier. And it is a film that is known as... Drive Angry, shot in 3D, in 3D. Drive Angry, starring Nicolas Cage, shot in 3D. This one is... Best movie of the year. Uh, it's up there. It's definitely up there. Heavily requested on the Greatest Movie Ever podcast, as if there was ever any doubt. We're talking about the property that did the year of the cage, although I guess all years are years of the cage. Maybe not after Drive Angry 3D, because I looked it up, and it has not yet made its money back. People do not understand what the ultimate films really are. Yeah, although I think it's a little more hopeful because I'd heard on a different podcast that they had spent $150 million on this film. No way. Not even close. 30 or 40, and you can tell just from looking at the high-quality CG effects work. Those CG effects are groundbreaking. I couldn't even tell that they were done by a computer. People talk about James Cameron and Avatar, but... How are you going to squeeze another $110 million out of this movie unless you have Nicolas Cage regrow his other eye? That's why they couldn't do it. Because they were like, that's going to be another $110 million. We only budgeted for one eyeball. 3D technology, it has a unique double-edged sword possibility to it in that it makes terrible CG look not terrible, and it makes everything else that looks great look more terrible. I enjoyed the movie when I saw it in the theater, but I didn't realize how distracting the 3D element of it was until I watched it again on Blu-ray and saw stuff that I had seen the first time, but I just hadn't processed. There was something about the 3D element that was distracting to me, such that when I got out of watching Drive Angry 3D in the movie theater, I thought, it was okay movie, it was good. A little tame by normal standards, you know, kind of kind of low-key in that regard. And then I watched it again on Blu-ray and said, huh, how did I miss how truly envelope-pushing this movie was in terms of its violent content and its gratuitous nudity? I think that's just because you live on a different plane of existence where you regularly have to watch crazy Japanese films on a, for a living, as it were. The real pushback against 3D is largely due to the fact that Roger Ebert intensely hates the format and nerds on the internet worship everything that Roger Ebert says. You don't think it's because it costs like $17 to see a movie and people just shoehorn it into every movie to make it cost $17? Let me finish. Can I finish? Can I finish? When using an actual 3D camera that is properly lit and everything is filmed for 3D as this movie was, I think the 3D effects work really well. The problem is the post-converted 3D does not look very good at all, which is like what you said, Paul. It makes everything look darker and kind of crappy. 
because pretty much every freaking movie now has 3D in it that you can't really tell which ones are really done in it and which ones aren't. That is what makes people sour on the format. But if you want to see like the shining pinnacle of the greatness of 3D, it'd be Drive Angry 3D because it's actually done with the real cameras. And I actually thought in the theater it was great. In your defense of what I'm about to say, my ability to perceive 3D is apparently limited as the 3DS is evidencing. However... I don't remember a whole lot of being in 3D aside from like the usual glass from an explosion being flung at the screen. There were some interesting things that they did with it. There was one scene specifically that doesn't translate to 2D that Daryl mentioned in a different form. I don't remember what it was, but it was a scene where it involved Nicolas Cage driving at night and the flashback information appearing like on the inside of the windshield while his face was in the deeper plane. That doesn't translate to 2D the same way. And that was actually a pretty innovative use of the format. And again, I don't really have a problem with how it was used in this movie because it was intended to be used in that way from the very beginning. And it was done by a guy who sort of makes it his life goal to bring 3D back to the movie theater as evidence with things like My Bloody Valentine. But I just feel that the movie is... I don't know how to describe it, but something about my inability to benefit from 3D technology, much in the way Dave does, impugned upon the cinematic excellence of the film, such that I didn't truly appreciate it until I watched it again and could really just revel in the mayhem that for some reason did not make a connection with me the first time around. The best feature in Blu-ray history, you mean? The Bulletstorm-esque Nicolas Cage cage rage meter that gives him points for every act of violence and depravity he commits throughout the film. I didn't actually watch that. Is it points? It's points. It is video game style points. So he gets different points relating to what he's doing. That is correct. So like the awkward white guy roundhouse kick might be five points. I give that 500 points. <laughs> That's the highest scoring move in all of Kung Fu or action cinema. But I see your point. That's better because if it's just like a you know, a kill counter, there's no heart in that. That's just some guy padding out the DVD features, just being like, all right, I'm going to watch the movie once, just click off one of them little number things every time I see him kill somebody. But if he has to go through the effort of being like, all right, this kung fu kick is worth five points, but is he scored against other people? Because there's, there's some other violent actors. It is purely Nicolas Cage's scorekeeping. He's decremented some points for, you know, failing to connect, you know, with certain, you know, not quite Hong Kong, you know, but imported cyber Hong Kong shotguns. Well, that's good that there should be a penalties as well. Otherwise, we're not being honest. To bring it into what we're supposed to be talking about, and the last time I was on this podcast was when we talked about Hobo with a Shotgun, and I talked about how there was this growing trend in films to start making new movies using these exploitation-esque sort of content material, and there were different approaches to it, of which Hobo with a Shotgun was kind of like one far end as far as being very earnest. This is not the same as that at all, but I still think it works as a film, even though it is certainly meant to be a fun movie. And it's a very, very simple concept. You can sum it up quite easily. Nicolas Cage plays John Milton, a revenant who has returned from hell because an evil cult leader has murdered his daughter and kidnapped his granddaughter and plans to sacrifice her in order to open a portal to hell. Fits right on the poster. Pretty simple. You know, he's trying to get the baby back. That's what he's trying to do. Kind of like shoot him up in that regard, I guess. Yeah, it's almost exactly like shoot him up in that there is a scene where he has to kill a bunch of people while having sex. Hey, he put his own spin on that by having a cigar and the liquor. 
I mean, he is a little less concerned about the fact that he is actually having sex. So I guess they'll give him that angle. He's a Golgo 13 kind of sex machine. When I first saw that scene, I thought it was entirely derivative of Shoot 'em Up as well that, that did it earlier. And I thought did it better until going back and seeing it again. How truly goofy that scene is with the cigar and with the bottle of Jack. And with the being tased. Yeah, with the results of the cattle prod, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought were important. It was an important thing to have in your film. There's a character development. It's like, he don't care about boning. It's just in front of him. He's got his whiskey. Drive Angry is what I would call a mayhem film. Not in the from dusk till dawn sense, but in the not very nice main character, somewhat anti-hero protagonist acting out all of your anti-social impulses against scummy people who probably deserve it. Yeah, with the exception of maybe like one guy, I would say every single person who gets killed in this movie deserves to be killed. Who's the one guy? The random restaurant bar employee who ends up getting catches a bullet randomly. I didn't really feel for him or nothing. It's just like, oh, he didn't really do anything to deserve being shot other than like inadequately painting toenails while naked. But I guess that was just to make you realize how terrible, scummy, bad those cultists really were. There can't really be better villains in a movie than crazed, demonic, Satan-worshipping cultists. I mean, what more do you want? Because they all look so particularly scummy. They've got that heinous thing going on. Each person looks like a jerk in a completely different way. Like, did you see that? The best one, I think, is the guy with the really bad wig. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know who you're talking about. It's impossible to not notice, but it's like the fact that the movie at no point does anyone point out that this guy's hair is bothersome. It just is. If you listen to the commentary, which is, again, enlightening, it's the first commentary I've heard where the director is suffering from laryngitis. They were like, we, we gotta do it today. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. That's how he rolls. He's got to explain the merits of his fine, high-quality family entertainment. He just couldn't hold it back. They were like, maybe we should wait until tomorrow. He's like, no, the world has to know. Yeah, he specifically mentions that they deliberately sought out the worst wig in the wig supplier's stock. They specifically found this particular wig from like this 1977 action movie and demanded that they have it for shooting the next day. And the guy in the wig department... Yeah, he didn't want to give it to him. But they had to have it because it totally makes that character whom he is. Another one of my personal favorite characters in terms of just looks like a scummy human being is that brawless, methed out looking character, the woman in the black shirt who is armed with a nail bat at one point. And that's the sort of thing is there's an attention to detail that Lucier put into making this film that you don't necessarily pick up on unless you're really paying close attention. The confrontation that they have in the Southern Baptist Church, where all of a sudden all of the parishioners are armed. If you're not paying attention, you might miss the fact that somebody's got a nail bat, that somebody's got a Bowie knife, that somebody's got a machete, that somebody has a tactical crossbow of all things. The opportunities that present themselves to do goofy things in films that people might not necessarily notice unless they're paying close attention. This movie is ripe with them. I pretty much just assume that's how a hillbilly church is armed, so it didn't really strike me as out of the ordinary. They just show up to pray, you know, loaded for bear. That's Second Amendment. And then one woman, her weapon of choice is baby. Should we start more at the beginning? I guess, you know, you kind of already gave away like the big thing at the halfway point. So yeah, we may as well 
get into it. Because there's just so much that I want to talk about in this film, but I feel like I'm doing people the disservice by describing. Do you guys have that same sort of hesitation when approaching Jive Angry? I certainly did, because when I did another podcast on the Awesome Cast about this, we kind of didn't want to give away the best parts, but that was only because the movie had just recently come out. Just for reference, it's not like it's commonly known explicitly that Nicolas Cage is a revenant until about an hour into the film. Oh, come on. They give that away in the in the trailer. No, no. That's what I mean. Trailers give away the entire movie. They're giving out information that the film structure is not designed to be like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to just know this. It's presented in the film as a surprise that he survived what would otherwise be a completely fatal thing. They did go back and they added in that scene at the very beginning of the movie with him escaping from hell in the car. We see a car driving in a weird zone and a hilarious voiceover. I call it a weird zone. Like it could be like a volcano highway. It could be Jersey. It's a meatloaf video is what it is. It's, I mean, it's nothing to do with the movie. They just were like, bad of hell. Pretty good album. Good voiceover by William Fickner. Good everything by William Fickner. I mean, all he did was just show up and be like, I was Mahone in Prison Break. I'm going to be Mahone from now on. And that's what he did. I knew you were going to say that, and I've prepared some thoughts to that matter. Because aside from the fact that he plays the part of a G-man, I don't see a lot in common with those two characters. They got some sweet suits, and they can just beat the shit out of anybody effortlessly. Can they? Because Mahone is like a snivelly whiner for almost the entire show. Mahone is presented as a guy that they cannot defeat in any sort of combat whatsoever. He can beat anybody in any fight at any point. No one ever gets the drop on Mahone. But he spends like the whole third season like naked and crying. No, no, no. That's Bellic. Mahone is the one who kills like three dudes. Okay, he's not literally naked for as long, but... He spends the whole third season being like, oh, I wish I had some drugs. He was off his meds, and he started breaking necks, like, left and right. But in any case, that season never happened. This is the real Prison Break the movie because Nicolas Cage broke out of prison, and they have sent Agent Mahone to go get him. Except Agent Mahone is crazy. So you feel in a prequel where they show Nicolas Cage being broken out of prison by his brother? I'm hoping that they do a sequel where it's just a buddy cop movie with the accountant and Milton. I mean, that's sort of what they were setting up at the end of the film. I would totally watch that movie. You don't think they were setting up that he would rot in hell for all eternity for his transgresses? No, I think he'll be out within a week. You know how the justice system is. Lazy and corrupt. Yeah, revolving door prison. Broken windows and all that kind of thing. There's no three strikes program in hell. I think we've seen not just the, you know, metaphysical hell, but also the real world hell that is the backwaters of America by virtue of this movie. Oh my God. Fat loose sexual harassment roadside diner. How about that? I mean, I pretty much just assumed they were in hell the whole movie. Was that not the case? I think it was like a David Lynch thing or saying elsewhere where there's only like five minutes. It's real. This was not, in fact, Tales from the Hood. Oh, okay. Although, would that it were, because Clarence Williams III would have brought some class to this film. Not that the cage is not at his classiest in this movie. It's just that, as cagey as the cage is in this film, we've got other characters that shine as brightly, if not more so. William Fichtner stealing the show as the accountant was really good. Billy Burke as completely douchey Twilight dude one more time, only this time he's got like the really goofy long fingernails and the odd bizarro southern accent. Jim Morrison combined with 
Jim Jones. Were you getting like a bit of a mystery vibe from him? Oh, like is he a pickup artist? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, okay, when you were saying mystery, I was like, who? Step one, you gotta have a gimmick. You know, mystery, he used goggles. I'm gonna use this human leg bone. <laughs> All the ladies come up to you when you got the human leg bone. And when you got a leg, you got an egg. <laughs> So it's this road movie conflict between Milton trying to get the granddaughter back from Jonah King, the leader of the religious cult. Again, it was one of those things when I watched it in the theater, I thought it was kind of, you know, a little little tame, a little laid back. They were a little subtler when the, with their, you know, biting the villain's off when he tries to force fellatio upon somebody. Was that subtle? I think I knew what happened immediately. I think this movie is the opposite of subtle. You gotta remember, I'm coming from the Tokyo Gore Police school of thought, where the subtlety is when you actually show them spit the severed member back in the face. Yeah, I was gonna say, if it's not flailing around in her mouth, like an animatronic puppet. So subtle, definitely really, really subtle, almost like French New Wave kind of Italian neorealism sort of subtleties here. You know, they just had the, the reaction shot and then the, the blood dripping from the mouth of the soon-to-be razor-slashed victim. Eh, it could have gone either way, you know. I guess compared to that, it was pretty tame. But I have not seen many movies where a is bitten off. I guess I did see Dead Girl. So I've seen at least one other movie. Piranha 3D that's not even actually 3D. It's a fake 3D. Biting the penises off of villains is a fairly common trope that I encounter in film, so... Maybe that explains his slight ambiguities and slight effeminate nature is that he's been dismembered. How stupid are you? Like, that's probably the first thing you should think about if you're the leader of a satanic cult who's going around raping women. Don't put your d*** near their mouth. <laughs> stupid. Maybe he was just that confident in his cultish brainwashing things. Yeah, he's like Sun Young Moon over here. <laughs> I can't believe it took him this long to get his bit off. He'd already been stabbed in the face with his own weird pentagram, and then he, one, brings that same girl back and tries to have sex with her again. Two, he continues to wear the pentagram, <laughs> thinking that nothing bad's gonna happen to him. Yeah, no one would ever think to take this thing off of my neck and stab me with it again. That would just be crazy. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, can't get fooled again, and then, you know, puts that thing on. I'm glad that they presented certain opportunities for Piper, the female character, in the lead to show what she's made of. It seems too often in films, the women serve simply as damsel in distresses or women in refrigerators, if you want to be Gail Simone about it. No, that's not. In this movie, Piper, she's neither of those things, and she becomes a tough character in her own right. There is a tendency to, like Die Hard with a Vengeance, Daryl's favorite Die Hard, there's a tendency to have the woman, for example, beat up too much on the man in order to make it okay for him to hit her with a car. That was Live Free or Die Hard. Die Hard with a Vengeance is the one with Samuel Jackson. Yeah. Sorry about that. You're right. You're saying there has to be some sort of innate justification to allow the hero to hit a woman in most films because there's some inherent inequality, whereas in this movie, anything kind of goes, and I appreciate it for that. Not only that, though, that like Piper really looks like she's someone who could do some damage in a fight. She looks like she really wants to hurt you when she throws that punch. It's not one of those sissy little ineffective, I'll grab them by the wrists and threaten them sort of thing. It's like she is knocked down, drag out, biting, kicking, 
throwing elbows, dirty, brawling kind of fighting. I also appreciate the fact that when she gets smacked by her boyfriend, when she drives him to actually striking back, she gets a nosebleed from it. It actually has a physical consequence, which is not something you ever see in most movies, which is part of why they just don't have women in fights. But also her reaction to her having her blood drawn is to spit it in his face and not lay down. You know what I'm saying? Like it's one of those she keeps getting back up kind of situations. Very Bruce McCullough like. I appreciate it as well. I mean, it's all too easy considering how beautiful Amber Heard is to just sort of have her be that kind of Megan Fox, Daisy Dukes kind of character. And that's completely not the direction they went with, even though she is wearing very, very little throughout this film, much to the benefit of the viewing audience. But you can still buy her as a viable like sidekick like she's not really presented as like the girl for Nicolas Cage to hook up with in fact they specifically go out of their way to not have that from the very beginning because hey Nicolas Cage he just needs to get some of his trashy waitress style yeah bar wench that's more his scene as I imagine that's just art imitating life (laughs) I mean that's just what Nicolas Cage do I'm pretty sure that he once again just showed up wearing his own personal wardrobe for this film. Driving his own personal cars. Yeah. They did make a point of of mentioning that Nicolas Cage pretty much ad-libbed almost everything involving his sexuality in this film, whether it be sticking his tongue down his waitress's throat. Yeah, that whole kiss was completely unplanned. Yeah, and keeping his clothes on during the sex scene, that was totally Nicolas Cage's idea. Man, I don't know if that makes it better or just makes me feel really weird about Nicolas Cage. It could really go either way. Would you have wanted to see him naked? His hair is a bird. Your argument is invalid. His hair was not a bird this time. No, I'm just like, man, Nicolas Cage, everybody always talks about how weird you are. But it turns out you may be weirder than anybody has ever conceived. Nicolas Cage's weirdness defies conventional understanding. I just want to follow that guy around. I want to just wear his skin yeah baby his explicit reason for taking this film he was considering passing on it until they said that they were going to shoot him in the eye and he was so enamored with the idea of getting shot in the eye on film something he'd never done well he gets shot in the eye and that's not even the end of the movie that's just like he got shot in the eye and then he keeps going for another hour I'm sad that they cut this out of the film, but apparently there were many scenes where he stuck his tongue out and was trying to give us the cage tongue effect in full 3D, but none of that actually made it to the final version of the film, which I think is somewhat of a travesty. But also, I guarantee you that all of those lines that he had about, you think you're Baron Samedi, you think you're low-key, that is a Nicolas Cage ad-lib if I have ever heard one. There's no way that was in the script. That has got to be like, I'm paying for this movie, I'm going to say it, and everybody's like, But you say it like 10 times in the movie, dude. It might have been clever like one time. No, it was clever every single time because it was different each time. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was naming all sorts of gods of death. I mean, it's like, it's not like they had a dictionary on set or anything. I came up with an interpretation for that that might be different from either of yours. I thought he was specifically mentioning those deities because they were what made the bullets in the God Slayer. Like, they had been killed and turned into the ammunition of the God Slayer. It's entirely possible, but the God Killer is a total MacGuffin in this film. I'm sure there's a perfectly valid reason for why there's this super shotgun that defies Nicolas Cage's (laughs) existing Hong Kong shotgun that he has by default. But 
It is irrelevant to the film. All we know is that it is a gun that fires uh, really big bullets and destroys everything. And that's all we need to know. I think there may be an interpretation as far as who the accountant actually is. Because if you look at his coin, it is a very specific, like one of those Greek sort of coins, kind of, you know, Charon or Charon, the uh, ferryman who'd take people to Hades. And so that suggests that there are multiple elements of hell and mythologies in the afterlife going on here. And therefore, Nicolas Cage may drop spirituality as he sees fit. I think he was just trying to make fun of him, but that's just a guess. I don't think he was actually referencing any of these things in a realistic way. Like, Baron Samedi came last week and I was like, get the f*** out of here. So what chance do you think you have? Wasn't Baron Samedi that Bond villain or guy in Goldeneye with the funny hat? Yeah, I'm that dude. Hell yeah. My favorite element of the mythology that they don't really spend a great deal of time treating on in this film, except for the inexplicable video feeds staring into the trash can speech that comes out later, which a lot of that I understand was also Nicolas Cage all the way. I like the fact that Jonah King's character is a true believer. He honestly thinks that sacrificing this baby in a black magic satanic ceremony will open the portal to hell. Oh yeah, it's easily the equivalent of the Mask of the Red Death in that respect. Like, it's Vincent Price getting his comeuppance. The fact of the matter is, in this movie, Satan is not that kind of person. He is, as the accountant explains, the warden of a prison, well-read. Everything you know about religion is wrong in this film. Yep, Jesus, Carpenter, despite what you may know, prefers short hair. Yeah, I, I just like that approach to it. They've got this sort of hands-on, practical, pragmatic thing, where all of the ghosts and goblins and supernatural bullshit is actually sort of incidental because what's really going on is Milton has managed his escape and he's, he's stolen the god killer and is running amok. But with good reason. It's good reason, but he's a bad character. I mean, if you go back and really pay attention to his arc as a character in the film, he is a consummate manipulator. He's not a nice guy. I think that there are subtleties that Nicolas Cage brings to the performance that go beyond just the white man kung fu. I think that's actually important to, like, getting the spirit and feel of the movie right as far as tone because the kind of movie is sort of trying to evoke that sort of 70s car movie yeah those typically had some pretty you know anti-heroic main characters and so i like that it's not very clear and cut that everyone is not exactly a force for good in this film it's just kind of shades of gray or you know shades of red as it were considering all the you know gunshots and robocop like runnings over that take place the stunts and the violence are all really well done, bad CGI notwithstanding. I really like the action in the mayhem scenes, and I especially love the involvement of Tom Atkins in this film. He's only in it briefly, but I think he really steals the show. He's the captain of the Oklahoma State Troopers. One of those guys you're like wondering, why is this guy in this movie? Oh, it's because he's kind of hilarious. Well, keep him. It's got graphic violence. That is an understatement. <laughs> it's got ridiculous nudity. It's, in many senses, this cathartic experience that you can act out your antisocial impulses through without any sense of guilt. And I think people don't really understand mayhem movies in that regard. Well, it's very, very crank-like as far as what level of content you're getting. I mean, it's certainly a little more coherent narrative-wise as far as something making sense. People aren't used to seeing like this level of excess in cinema anymore, and they don't really know what to make of it. I don't understand that they don't know what to make of it. It's like they can't see beyond the violence to the purpose of the violence. They can't see what the film is supposed to do and thus they don't know how to feel. 
how to react to it. A lot of people think that because most of the films that come out now that have this level of violence and nudity together in one movie tend to be those hard R torture porn kind of movies that you're supposed to get some sort of like, I don't know, sexual arousal out of this. And it's like, no, it's completely not that, guys. It's just incredibly hilarious to see a guy get pinned to a wall with a baseball bat. And then as someone else is talking to him, just kind of keep tapping the bat <laughs> To accentuate your punctuations, that is what cinema is. Do you see the value of having a film that provides a safe outlet for antisocial impulses? Because that, I think, is one of the chief purposes for films like Drive Angry, like Crank, like Shoot 'em Up, like Hobo with a Shotgun. They actually have something intelligent to say if you're paying attention. It's just that people can't seem to accept the fact that that sort of content is in a film where so much mayhem happens. People are not willing to evaluate movies by those terms. You're absolutely correct. Like, I know there's another movie that's cartoon-wise that's very similar in uh, <laughs> approach in that the visuals are really, really crazy, but the characterization is very low-key and such that a lot of people walk away with saying, oh, that movie had no story. But no, it's just people don't want to process like looking at films using that sort of like fine focus that you'd use for a drama as you would with an action movie. People just like think, oh, it's an action movie. I don't need to evaluate the movie by those sort of criteria. And therefore, it's just like, eh, whatever, stupid stuff. But no, there's actually development and characters and stuff going on in this film if you want it to be there. I think what's missing from the people that don't get these movies is that amount of critical circumspection. All that they see are violent antisocial people doing violent antisocial things. And they think that this is somehow a celebration of that. And it's only 75% that. You're supposed to thrill in the righteous beatdowns that Nicolas Cage puts on some of these people, but you're not supposed to want to emulate it or internalize it as a part of yourself or something like that. These movies, Crank, Drive Angry, Hobo with a Shotgun, are not saying that these people are heroes that you should emulate and that you should pattern your behavior off of the actions of these extremely violent, angry people. The people don't make that connection. You know, it's like if you were to watch a Clockwork Orange, and the moral you take away is, boy, is Alex, what a badass dude he is. I want to cosplay him at the next WonderCon. You are treading on dangerous ground if you're going to even put Clockwork Orange in the same sentence as Drive Angry. Unless the sentence is, Clockwork Orange is not as good as Drive Angry. I think it's absolutely a fair comparison. What? You are crazy. You are being a crazy person. Like, I totally think it's a fair comparison, and I think that the only difference is that Stanley Kubrick has got such a name behind him that he is given critical consideration, and these other films are dismissed. Equating the drive angry with the clockwork horns, you're like a crazy person. That's not right. I think it's a perfectly valid comparison. I understand what you're saying. Why? Because they're, they both have antisocial themes? Absolutely. You can dig as much message as you want out of anything, but I think a lot of that stuff is coming from you. You can only dig so deep before your thesis is not supported by the material as it exists. Like, I don't think you're going to be able to find a similar thing from the torture porn movies that Daryl mentioned. You're not going to be able to compare Hostel or the Saw movies to something like this, even though they have similarly graphic, violent content. These movies do have a social message, and they do speak to where our country is and where we are as a people, our concerns, our anxieties, and that kind of thing. And I think people's stubborn refusal to 
admit that is a disservice to themselves and to the films. What anxieties is Drive Angry addressing? I feel pretty anxious that I no longer have a 69 Charger that I can wield the stick shift very much like a lady would handle a penis. That is very much like a growing concern to me personally that I can't drive down the highway at a high rate of speed while screaming f*** the pain away and get away with it. Drive Angry definitely speaks to a sort of male anxiety of... Yeah, disenfranchised white male anxiety? No, specifically men feeling... I'm not going to use the film noir term, but there's definitely a sense that there are men that feel that they are useless and ineffectual in a world that has left them behind. That's definitely present here. But then if you keep going down that track, then the moral is, well... You're not useless. Look at how many people you can murder. <laughs> hey, it's a good moral. I guess there's there's a there's a wealth of difference between something like Drive Angry and like the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> no one mentioned the Maltese Falcon. Well, you said film noir. No, he just said he didn't want to go that way. I didn't want to mention film noir because film noir has the but sense you said I didn't want to mention male film noir, anxiety. You said, but it is a very similar concept. Of disenfranchisement. The male anxiety is a similar concept. It's not expressed in the same way. I only bring up the great works of great playwrights by mentioning Chekhov's gun. In this case, we've got Chekhov's and I think it really pays off. No, don't give away the best example of foreshadowing in the history of film. Okay, you can edit that out. You can just replace it with talk of Dave saying, dilly, 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 doo, and then it'll be fine. I don't know. I am totally down with the idea that action movies are more than just action movies. But I think you guys are really working hard to get something out of Drive Angry. I thought it was a pretty okay movie. I thought it was decent. But the whole time, it just felt like they were trying so damn hard. So you're saying this is basically like Machete to you? No, because Machete is there, like, I think it's along the same track in that when I was watching this movie, lines like the Baron Samdi really fell flat because I was in there like, okay, I get it. You thought of something clever to say and now you really want us to know how clever you are. But Machete takes that to a, a much greater extreme than Drive Angry. I came out of Drive Angry being like, that was okay. I liked it for the most part. I thought it had some pretty funny parts and it had some good action parts. Where Machete, I was like, eh, that was pretty weak almost across the board. And like solely because Danny Trejo and Cheech Marin were in it were like why it was good. You're lined up for Pool Boy then. I recommend Pool Boy. No, that's, that's also a very trying, very hard sort of film. Yes, I saw the image you posted. Who's he playing against in that? Dolph Lundgren? He's playing Kevin Sorbo. Oh, Kevin Sorbo, even better. I, how dare I besperse the name of Dolph Lundgren? I don't think that's a real thing. It's a real movie, but the movie is about making a fake movie. and it's, Oh, that's dangerous territory. It is dangerous territory, and that's why I said I think it is a mistake to equate Drive Angry with like the super-duper Joss Whedon, Robert Rodriguez, I'm trying super-duper hard to show how impressive and clever I am kind of film. It's a matter of sincerity. I think this is a fairly sincere movie. It's played more broadly than Hobo with a Shotgun is, but it's still, it's got a level of genuineness and honesty to it that I find, frankly, refreshing. The honesty is that it knows exactly what it's aspiring to do, and it does not really seek to like go beyond that it knows that they have no money for cg so they just go ahead and make explosions and certain effects look hilariously fake like particularly so 
without caring. It's not like they're trying to just say, oh yeah, this is supposed to look great, but really it's just ultraviolet. No, this was like, all right, if we're going to blow this thing up and we don't have the money, we're going to make an Aqua Teen Hunger Force style explosion and call it a day. The hydrogen truck scene alone was like, they made that great purely by what song they chose to accompany with it. I mean, they had originally given that clip away for free online to say like, oh look, this movie is crazy and cool, but they didn't have the song in there. And so everyone watching is like, this is dumb. And I've heard a lot of reviews of this movie that thought either that it was trying too hard to be like clever or that it just fell flat for them. And so I don't know why it worked for me and just completely didn't work for the rest of the world, but I did. And I think this is part of the reasons why it was just like the guys knowing, all right, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to have a Winnebago fight. And the Winnebago fight is going to last five or ten minutes, and it's going to happen at the same time as Nicolas Cage shooting a pistol and blowing up a car. This is one of the first films I've seen in a long time where I actually was interested in the car chases. That would have been a deal breaker for me, considering how much of this movie is car oriented. If the car action scenes were bad, as they tend to be in so many movies since this sort of 70s car action era film, then the movie would have sucked. But no, all the car chases I thought were done really well, editing-wise, space perception-wise, all that jazz. So my hat's off to these guys. It shows that it can be done. You don't have to have guys chasing each other, rapid-cutting, firing a bunch of machine guns. I mean, unless it's Jason Statham in a death race... You can still have car chases that mean it to something in a movie in the modern day. Why do we not see that more often? Because it's easier to do it the other way. Was there anything that you took away from the movie that we haven't really touched on much? I mean, you said that you thought it was okay. What was it that stuck out to you? What was like your favorite moment or element of the film? I don't know. I'd have to think on it. Nicolas Cage is generally pretty funny in just about everything he does. It's no in a bear suit punching a woman in her face. Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. It's, the bar is set too high now. We've had, like, Deadfall and Vampire's Kiss and Wicker Man and all this. I don't remember what the title of the movie was. We did it on this podcast. Was it Knowing or was that the one about math? The one where he can see in the forward in the future? Next. Next was a great one, too. That was, like, a, such a high watermark of just... I don't know. You go to, like, Nicolas Cage being able to see into the future, or the most unbelievable part of it, that Jessica Biel would be attracted to him. When he looks like such a goblin, too. I think it was Jessica Biel. Now I don't even remember. Yeah, so you go from that to, like, all right, he escaped from hell. He escaped from hell and has a huge-ass shotgun. It's kind of cute that they, like, do the thing where he, like, flips the coin into the air, and then it turns into the badge, and he's like, I'm an FBI agent, everybody's just sort of stupid enough to believe him. I interpreted that as him having demonic influence on people. I think it's just more like people in the South are dumb. You guys are from there, you know. It's pretty accurate portrayal of the South. Bull by the Balls is a real place in my heart. So all I gotta do is go down there, and just some barmaid, some maiden of the night, just take me into her hotel room. They won't look as nice as they do in this movie, and they'll probably want some crystal meth out of the arrangement. But otherwise, yeah, pretty much. Hey, we, uh, we can work with that. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll, we can come to an arrangement. Do we have any final thoughts here on Drive Angry, filmed in 3D, starring Nicolas Cage and his awesome Nicolas Cage hair? Possibly not only the pinnacle of entertainment in 2011, but a groundbreaking film that will go down in the history of film criticism as the one that dethroned Stanley Kubrick. 
This movie loses a decent bit from not being seen in 3D. I mean, I don't have a Blu-ray 3D setup because it's outlandishly expensive and probably not really that worth it. It does lose something from not being shot in that. It's still a great movie to watch. I just wish it had found its audience in the theater and made some money. But this is pretty much my pick for pretty much the best film of the year, which is what I thought Like as soon as I came out of the theater. My reaction was like kind of the total opposite of Dave's. It was like, okay, this is the best movie of the year. Nothing else is coming remotely close to this. It will be an achievement if anything even touches this. And uh, thus far, my predictions have been correct. Uh, it's pretty much nothing I've seen in the theater has, you know, matched this. Hobo with a shotgun, I unfortunately, you know, I couldn't see it in a theater because it wasn't playing anywhere where I was. But in terms of content, you know, those two are kind of like, all right, these are like the ultimate films of the year at this point. So I was incredibly pleased by it. Uh, I wish they'd make more. Well, good luck. They better make it back on DVD sales. Listen, Dave, that's the story of my life. Maybe if you've heard my podcast about cartoons, my whole existence is one based on liking cartoons that nobody else liked, that didn't make any money, and that are never going to see sequels. Though our tastes may diverge, the result is generally the same. The things I like usually get a sequel, and then never a third. That's all right. I don't know. When they make The Rock 2... Still starring Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery, and they bring Tony Todd back, but he's got a rocket-shaped hole in his chest, and they replace it with cybernetics. And then they shoot him in that same place with another rocket, and it's like, Tony Todd, why you keep standing in front of rockets? Then, perhaps I will walk out of the theater and say, that was the best movie ever, nothing will ever top that. But with Drive Andrea, I was like, eh, it was alright. For the amount of money I paid to see that movie, which this is the first time I went to the theater in like, probably three years, I saw it with Paul. I didn't come out feeling super salty and being like, man, I spent so much money. I haven't been to the theater since I saw probably like Watchmen, which was also not an ideal experience. That is a bad movie. And the next movie I saw after Drive Angry was X-Men First Class, which I was not too enamored of. So I like that movie and everyone else, a lot of people I talked to intensely dislike that movie. That surprises me because everyone I've spoken to loves it. And I feel like we are the only, me and Grotz are the only people that don't really like it at all. Patrick Macias really hates that movie. Patrick Macias hates everything. That's true. Patrick Macias is our anti-monitor overlord from the antimatter dimension where SB was the Star Wars of the 70s. It's all right. You got your Armageddon piece up on that website and you live to tell the tale. Yeah, he actually complimented me on that. He called it even-handed. Then he backhanded you. Yeah, then he demanded I get back out in the corner and make him some money. And then I cried. But it's all cool. We're getting a little distracted. So bearing that in mind, this is Paul Chapman, sometimes known as the Almighty Goobrazilla and my gracious guest hosts. Joel. Dave. Clarissa. Gerald. Daryl. Jeremy from Destroy All Podcasts. <laughs> it's, oh man, I gotta think of a new joke for next time. Yeah. If I was smarter, I'd do it beforehand. But I always just come in thinking, don't worry about it. I'll just have it. It'll be off the cuff. It will be super funny. And everyone will laugh. But then I say something, nobody laughs, and then I just cry. So that's what I'm going to go do now. It's just cry. Cry angry? I mean, it depends. Going to go rewatch Groundhog Day, which is where Drive Angry came from. What? That's where the line comes from. Don't drive angry. Right. When Bill Murray was driving in the car, and he's like, don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. With Punxsutawney Phil. So that's where they got it from? They were like... I love Groundhog Day. This movie is a spiritual successor to Groundhog Day. Uh, Groundhog Day was kind of a movie about weird, creepy rape, if you think about it. Definitely. So we're signing off and saying, before I go, I'll say this much when I watched this film. It took me an hour to get to the movie theater. 
it took me 25 minutes to get back from the movie theater driving the exact same route. Because you were driving angry. Perhaps I was driving angry. Yeah, it's over. It's done. Hooray. I'm sick of you too. Yay. Okay, I'm going to hit stop. You know what this badge means, Paul? It means Federal Bureau. Get the f*** out of my podcast. <laughs> now you can just say that all the time. Snap. You think you're that crocodile goddess from Egyptian mythology? I thought I heard typing like, oh, I got to go in here and find the quotes as opposed to just remember them. You think you're Yen Lo Wang? You think you're Odin? You think you're Slepnir? <laughs> you think you're Ronald Reagan? <laughs> Trickle-down economics? Think you're Scotty? The only thing to fear is fear itself and a billion pointless tie-ins? I don't get that one. Neither do I. I'm hitting stop. <laughs>